Welcome to HB Media Minute, a podcast from Haynes and Boone that focuses on legal trends impacting the media and entertainment industry, intellectual property, and First Amendment law. I'm Nathan Koppel, the Director of Media Relations for Haynes Boone, and I'm excited to host our first HB Media Minute podcast of 2022. We're starting the year off with a great topic and a returning guest, Haynes Boone Associate Michael Lambert, who is based in our Austin office and is a member of the firm's intellectual property practice group. Michael focuses on media, entertainment, IP, and First Amendment litigation. Today, Michael will talk about some interesting developments in media and First Amendment law in connection with transparency and public access to police operations and courtroom proceedings. But before we get started, our usual disclaimer, this podcast is for informational purposes only, is not intended to be legal advice, and does not establish an attorney-client relationship. The topics we discuss are subject to change. Legal advice of any nature should be sought from your legal counsel. All right, Michael, with that aside, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Nathan. It's great to be here. Yeah, and so our discussion today centers on a a bedrock principle that the public has a right to know about the workings of the government, and that certainly includes police and courts. Um, And as a starting point today, I'm curious to get your thoughts about how recent events And here I'm thinking about the George Floyd murder, the COVID-19 pandemic, and then the January 6th riots at the Capitol have shifted expectations around governmental transparency. Do you think those events and perhaps others have created a greater demand for government accountability and transparency? Yeah, Nathan, they really have. You know, there have been recent events in the past, you know, over two years that have really changed how the law is shaped in three really important areas. Uh, And those three areas are the right to record police, um, the allowance of cameras in courts, and access to police body camera footage. You know, just taking one incident that really has impacted the whole world to use as an example, you know, the murder of George Floyd, it really emphasized the need for robust protections in these three areas. You know, starting with the day of the murder itself, you know, without the right to record police, a 17-year-old Darnella Frazier would have not been able to capture the over nine minutes that we all saw in which police were kneeling on George Floyd's neck. And then without the access to the police body camera footage, the public wouldn't have had the opportunity to see, you know, the violence and apathy demonstrated by the police officers. And then without cameras in the court, the world would have not been able to see justice ultimately being served. Yeah, you also think about, obviously, during the COVID-19 pandemic, out of necessity, so much of courtroom proceedings were done virtually. And I I wonder, just as the technology around kind of remote access has gotten better, does that somehow tilt the pendulum in favor of allowing kind of more robust recordings of courtroom activity? Yeah, absolutely. It's important to realize that courts are older institutions that have been around you know, for decades. And traditionally, the default rule has always been that cameras um, and recording devices generally are not allowed in the courtroom. And in part, it was because the, the initial technology was very bulky and burdensome. But as we've seen technology change and the ability to have recording devices become a lot easier, um, we've really seen courts slowly, but over time, they have started to allow these recording devices. But then when the pandemic hit and 
access to courts were, were greatly reduced or if not eliminated completely, um, you know, courts had to adjust. And they did um, by allowing um, audio and video um, coverage you know, via Zoom or via uh, YouTube or other social media platforms. So it really just sort of forced the hand of the courts um, to implement this new technology that, you know, really could have taken another number of years or another number of decades, but they were forced to do it. And they were able to see um, that, you know, that it, the advantages of having that type of coverage and the advantages of allowing the public to be inside the courtroom, um, even though virtually, but they're, you know, the advantages of that, they were able to kind of see that uh, through the pandemic. I think, I think the saying is necessity is is the mother of all invention. Well, we're going to get back to courtrooms in a minute. Let's pivot back to police operations, if, if we can, for a second. Um, what's the general state of federal law regarding the right to record police operations? Yeah, so five federal appellate courts, the first, third, fifth, seventh, and ninth circuits, you know, they have held that the First Amendment protects the right to record police when they're conducting their duties in public. As long as you're doing the recording publicly and you're not interfering with the police doing their job. You know, so this right is protected for about 61% of the U.S. population, but it is not established in the rest of the country. And actually this fall, the U.S. Supreme Court had the chance to universally recognize the right to record, but ultimately denied review in a case out of the 10th Circuit called Frazier versus Evans. If you know, in those areas of the country where there isn't an established right to record police operations, you know, what would happen if you're just a citizen on the street and you see something that you're a little bit suspicious about and you turn on your iPhone and start recording? Is there a penalty for that or is it just something that a court could seize, the police could seize your phone and say, sorry, you you can't do that? Yeah, I think it's twofold there. I think practically the police officers and police departments in those jurisdictions probably don't have the same amount of training that um, that dictates that this is a First Amendment protected right. So from that perspective, I think it matters when you're actually out there in the field. But then legally, you know, there are wiretapping statutes that can sometimes be, be used against um, those that do record the police. So on um, both of those fronts there, they're just generally a little more risk that you may incur either, you know, um, hesitation or, or, or um, other types of, um, of actions from the police actually in the field, but also potentially legal, um, legal violations as well. I'm curious, I've heard before police unions and, and, um, and police organizations make the argument that the, the, the risk with recording is that you could take police activity out of context. Um, and, and, really not capture, you know, the, the, the true reality of what police are facing in, in a particular situation and, and, and lead to an unfair, ungrounded scrutiny against police if you just were to record all their activities. I can recall police saying, you know, how would you like to be recorded every day with what you're doing? Um, but I'm curious your thoughts. Has, has greater transparency in the parts of the country where it's allowed, do you think, led to greater uh, scrutiny and disciplinary actions against the police? Yeah, I think one thing to, is important to note from the outset, Nathan, is that, you know, the police aren't average citizens, right? These are government officials that are tasked with um, protecting the citizens and, 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 and having that role. And the other thing is they're, for a large part, 
doing this job in public, right? So the right to record um, generally protects their the police's conduct when they're in public, which is different than an individual's you know right to privacy within his home. So I think that difference is is something that's important um, to note. You know, but the ability to document the police, you know, whether it's through video or audio, you know, it has had tangible effects in that there have been a number of civil right lawsuits that have been brought against police for violations of uh, First and Fourth Amendment rights because there is this tangible evidence that they, they can use in their court uh, proceedings. You know, as of December 16th of 2021, journalists had filed 45 lawsuits across 24 cities suing police officers following arrest and assaults um, at protest. You know, and one of those cases is a really interesting one. It's called Gray versus City of New York. Um, it's in the Southern District of New York. And there, there are five news photographers that have sued the New York Police Department under what's called Section 1983, which is a civil rights federal law. And they're, they're alleging uh, violations of their First Amendment right um, that these police officers targeted them while they were peaceably recording police activity from a public street and sidewalk. Um, and this case is currently going through discovery right now. Yeah, it's such an interesting area. I mean, maybe I've seen too many police dramas on TV, but it seems like you see instances where a police police officer will say, you know, shut that camera off. But again, I guess as you've been spelling out here, Michael, if you're in an area where it's allowed, um, you're allowed to stand there and record uh, as long as it's in the public. And, um, they're engaging in police activity. Is, it, is that right? Absolutely. And, you know, another key part of that is that you're not interfering with them, right? I mean, if, if you're if you're going up close to them or doing anything to distract them from doing your job, you know, that's a different situation. But what we're, what we're talking about here is, as you saw with Darnella Frazier, right, just standing outside, not saying anything, not yelling, not interrupting physically, but just standing there and just passively recording. And that's the core of what is protected. Yeah, it really serves an, an, just an unbelievably vital accountability piece for our society. Let me ask you about body cameras. That seems to be, a, I don't know if it's right to say controversial, but I, I feel like you hear so many instances where body cameras are required. Sometimes they're turned on. Sometimes they're not turned on. Police uh, unions seem to push back against it. What's the state of the law now in regards to body cameras or the public's right to review those those uh, body cameras? Yeah, so generally, um, the public can obtain uh, police body-worn camera footage through public information requests or by seeking access to them if they're introduced in court as part of uh, court records. Um, and states have various policies just generally in place to determine whether um, the, the body cam footage will be released. You know, for example, California requires the release of what they call critical incident recordings within 45 days of those incidents. But Colorado, so they require footage to be released within 21 days, but only after a complaint is actually received. And in Wisconsin, um, body cam footage is subject to inspection and release um, just generally under its open records law. So as you can see, there are variation of, of policies um, throughout states and also within you know, certain police departments. And why the reason why access is so important is because the chief goal of having these police body-worn cameras is to allow the public to monitor police conduct, right? And hold them accountable. 
But if you're not actually releasing the footage to the public, then the purpose of their implementation to begin with is really defeated. Yeah, that ma- that makes perfect sense. Have you seen any courts, legislatures, or, or just, I guess, members of society trying to push the pendulum back the other way? That is saying, it seems like the general trend is towards greater transparency, you know, greater use of technology to, to uh, you know, to, to view these vital governmental actors. But have you seen uh, any pushback? So I'm saying, hey, public needs to back off a little bit and, and give police more a zone, a zone of privacy. Yeah, you know, we have unfortunately seen an increase in violence against the press trying to cover protests and other events. Um, there's a great organization um, called the U.S. Press Freedom Foundation, and they have a tracker that found that there were 141 assaults of journalists and 57 arrests uh, slash detainments of journalists in 2021. You know, and on the legislative side, states such as Oklahoma and Florida have enacted what what are being considered anti-protest laws, and they're aimed at suppressing the actual right to protest. Um, The good news on that front is that courts have largely found these laws to be unconstitutional and have enjoined them from actually being enforced. But I think the enactment of them um, just on itself is is troubling. Well, let's let's turn back to courtrooms now. Um, And if you could... You talked a little bit about it earlier, but just remind us what the traditional rules have been governing the public's right to to view live court proceedings. Yeah, so courts have recognized a First Amendment right to access court proceedings and documents that are filed within the court under you know certain circumstances. But this right does not extend to the use of audio or video recording devices in those courts. You know, and as we were discussing earlier. Courts have largely prohibited the public or the press from recording court proceedings. You know, the federal rules of criminal procedure um, expressly ban photography or the broadcasting of federal criminal hearings. In state courts, you know, they vary in whether they allow audio or video recordings. You know, and as most people know, the highest court in this country, the U.S. Supreme Court, has never allowed cameras in the court. So how, how has the landscape shifted since the pandemic? You know, the pandemic just forced these courts to reassess many of their traditional policies. You know, um, you know, these courts have had, you know, really strict policies that did not allow recording. But because of the social distancing requirements um, and and, and other restrictions at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, courts had to had to change their policy. And they, you know, did end up allowing the public to hear or and and oftentimes actually see, you know, inside the courtrooms. Um, You know, a good example of that is that, you know, the pandemic restrictions ended up resulting in the public being able to watch the Derek Chauvin trial uh, live from beginning to end. The Hennepin County District Court, where the trial took place, you know, their policy had traditionally been cameras are not allowed at all in criminal trials unless all parties um, consented. And in the Chauvin trial, Interestingly enough, Derek Chauvin's attorneys consented to the allowance of cameras, but the prosecutors did not. However, but because of the capacity limitations of the pandemic, the court actually made an exception and ruled that cameras should be allowed in order to preserve the First Amendment right of court access. It, it kind of seems to me there's an ad hoc quality to this. It, does, it, it doesn't seem like we've yet established a bedrock right 
to record courtroom proceedings. It kind of seems like it's left to individual courts, individual judges to, to decide case by case, does the public interest here warrant it? You know, what's the risk of, of you know, it being, I guess, too prejudicial? Is, is that the state of the play right now? That is, is it case by case? Yeah, it is largely case by case, court by court. Um, and I think that makes sense to a certain extent because um, the technology in different courtrooms are, you know, are not going to be the same. Um, and there's a big difference between state and federal courts on one hand, right? And there's also a difference between trial courts and appellate courts. So appellate courts have traditionally been more um, acceptable to the idea of having, of having cameras in there. Um, and state courts versus federal courts, state courts have typically been, you know, um, been more, you know, lean, lenient in, in that department. Yeah, it's ironic. I don't know if that's the right word, but that the Supreme Court, as you alluded, has been uh, fortified, a, a real bastion and hard to get access for the public to get access to Supreme Court proceedings. But since the pandemic, even they've opened up a little bit, I gather. And, right. It's really been an interesting development is that. You know, the Supreme Court ended up allowing audio of oral arguments to be live streamed, you know, for the first time at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and it's been a fight for years. There's been legis legislation that has been um, proposed to actually, you know, have cameras in the court, but it, it hasn't gained a whole lot of traction um, through the years. But because of the pandemic, um, you know, the public was able to hear and listen in at, on, at, you know, at a live basis the actual arguments. Um, and as you know, there are just so many important decisions um, that are being decided this this term. It's really been great that the public has been able to listen in and really learn what the advocates are saying, but also what the justices are saying and the questions that they're asking. So, you know, I certainly hope that they will continue to live stream, you know, at least the audio going forward. Um, there's no guarantee, but I, I like to think um, it has gone relatively smoothly so far to where, you know, that will continue, um, you know, in the, in the next, in the coming years. It, it seems like it would really be hard to turn back the clock on that. Once you've given the public a taste of, of, you know, live Supreme court proceedings to suddenly close that off and say, sorry, we're going, we're going back to shutting off public access. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there hasn't been any big incident where, you know, that has, would justify that change, right? Um, I think understandably, to a certain degree, the having cameras in there, um, you know, there, there are arguments against that. I don't necessarily agree with them, um, but I think because the audio has gone so well, and like you said, once you give somebody, you know, a right, it's really hard to take that away. So I'd be surprised that if they take that away, and I still do hold out hope that eventually you know, there will be a live streaming um, in the court and the public will be able to, you know, turn it, turn it on, um, you know, on the TV or on the Internet and just sort of watch, you know, visually get to see the body language of the, of the justices, get to see, you know, the way that the advocates are arguing their cases. I think the visual component is is just as important. And I hope that eventually that will be recognized. Yeah. And there aren't many Supreme Court cases. It's you know, around 80 a year, it seems like we, you know, we should be able to have complete access to all of them. Well, Michael, I just want to thank you for getting the year started off on such a strong note on the podcast. Before we sign off, I just want to invite listeners to visit the firm's website at hainesboo.com, where you'll find the firm's media and entertainment litigation practice page. 
which contains links to our media entertainment and First Amendment newsletter and to all of our HB Media Minute podcasts. Those podcasts are also available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, and I hope you'll tune in to the next HB Media Minute.